We're here today, this is week two of our series in the Psalms entitled Songs for Sinners. And that's a description of what the Psalms are. They're songs and that's a description of what you and I are. We're, we're, we're sinners. So inherently in this already is some sort of like a positional statement that we're making about ourselves and about this. This is, this is a song that is written to regular people like you and me who are sinners. And I had the other two services do this and it was actually like very honest and I was grateful for that. But just like give me one of these in your seat if you're a sinner. Do it really fast so nobody sees you. Just, just really quickly. Right. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Aren't we a welcoming church? Right. If that's a, a bit offensive to you, uh, truly I get it. Um, sinner is such an old word. It's a judgmental word. It's a, it's a, it's a bad word. We, we shouldn't be so quick to label one another, you say. And so if you're a little put off by the assertion that we're all sinners and that the Psalms is written to us as sinners, um, I want you to know, like, that's okay. I get it. Um, I, I think, though, that we have this misplaced superiority complex where, where in our minds, compared to the rest of the world, we're really not that bad of people, are we? I mean, I, I feel like I could line up like at least two-thirds of the world behind me to say like, I'm a little bit better than all of those people. Surely I can't be that bad to be labeled a sinner. Christians who know their theology know that they're saved by Jesus and, and called saints. And so uh, sometimes I hear people who are like, don't call me a sinner, I'm a saint. And um, like, okay, great. Um, don't sin. <laughs> See, he was a saint then. In reality, there's some people here right now who are like, yeah, you tell them. Because I've been watching all those Christians and, and blind hypocrites is what they are. They're going around saying they're all perfect and everything and thinking like, no, 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 no. I've seen them. I'm, I'm at least better than they are. They should be more like me. They should be a little bit more nicer to people and a little better. I'm joking around here for, for effect because if we all truly have a moment of honest reflection, uh, even the best intentioned people sin. Can I get an Amen. In the Bible, the story of one of the worst sins is ironically told of one of the best people. King David was anointed as a young boy to be the chosen king of Israel at a time when a man named Saul was ruling the kingdom. Saul was the people's choice. He was tall, dark, and handsome. David was God's choice. He was a pure, innocent young man, humble shepherd who quietly but courageously watched over his father's sheep. One day, David stumbled into a battle between uh, the Israelites and the Philistines and David took a sling and he struck down Israel's enemy number one, Goliath. And the people started to rally behind David and started to see him in a different light as not just some shepherd boy but, but as a, a victorious military conqueror. And, and all of a sudden David, could, David started winning uh, the favor of the people and, and was put into the kingdom after Saul. And the Bible tells us, the Psalms, in fact, tell us that David, though he was the second king in Israel, he was the greatest of all the kings. They would call him a man after God's own heart. Man, what a a goal for your life, right? Like, to be called a man after God's own heart. Well, one year, as David has been settling into his kingdom, he decided not to head off to battle with his army and instead to stay behind and enjoy some of the comforts of what he's been working towards. Everything in the, in the kingdom had been humming along and so he sent out his army with his generals to go fight the wars for him and he stayed behind in the comforts of his palace. Up at the top of his palace, he stayed where he could look out the windows and see all the regions far and wide. From where David was, he could see everything. 
The Bible tells us that there was this beautiful woman named Bathsheba, and coincidence or not, we're told that she was bathing on top of her Ruth. You can't make this up. Bathsheba was bathing in probably what she assumed to be a private place. But from his rooftop where David could see everything, David saw everything. Caught up in a moment of desire, he sent his guards out to find out who that woman was and to bring her back to the palace. And when they had brought her back, he slept with her. The Ten Commandments have a word for this. It's called adultery, sex outside of marriage. The punishment for both parties involved was death. So you can imagine when Bathsheba came knocking on David's door again and said, hey, I'm pregnant, David got, his whole world got real very quick. All of a sudden, this little secret that he had was about to uh, become uncovered, and so uh, quick action must take place. David, he tries to get Bathsheba's husband back from battle so that he would sleep with Bathsheba, and then when the baby would come, maybe this guy would think that the baby was his. Doesn't work. So David decides another route, and he sends the man back to the front lines of battle to ensure his death. And that does work. David's actions cause harm and has brought about adultery and murder. Two egregious crimes, two death penalties looming over him and the death penalty for Bathsheba if ever she were to be found out. And so David goes into damage control. He's conveniently take, uh, he conveniently takes now available Bathsheba to be his wife. And she has the child and I'm sure all of Israel presumed that it was David's son. And for a year, David and Bathsheba lived in the sullen secret of their sin. For some of you, as I sort of rehash this story, like, this is just one Keith Morrison voiceover short of a Dateline episode for you. Other people are like, whoa, 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 why are we talking about this in church? Like, we go to Bethel, this is a good church, there are good people are here, nobody does this life, nobody actually lives like that. And thank God there are some regular people here who are thinking, I can't believe the story of my family is actually in the Bible. (laughs) Like, that sounds just like what happened to my family a couple of years ago. And the sad truth is that so many of us here today, our sin, we are those who have actually initiated the pain. Your sin has caused real problems in your life and in the life of your friends and your family. And what we choose to do when we sin reveals much to us the health of our hearts. So many of us, like David, go into fix-it mode, hiding our sin, hoping that time will heal our wounds, hoping that we can contain it or limit the damage. This is exactly what happens with David. He hides. His sin becomes a secret for a year until the prophet Nathan confronts him on it. He reads his mail in front of everybody. He calls David out. That's all recorded in 2 Samuel 12, if you care to look there. It takes an act of God to draw out David's sin, but how easy would it be for David to scoff off the prophet and to say, this guy's a lunatic. Don't listen to him. But we realize that's not how David responds. In the midst of his sin being confronted to him and knowing the internal struggle that must have happened in his heart, David confesses. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. What was hidden is now exposed. 
I believe the stress of hiding finally gave way to the true healing that needed to take place through honesty. David's story heightens our awareness that heightens our awareness of that secret, hidden world of our heart that is so important that we must handle it wisely. Today, as we look at the ramifications of David's confession, they're found in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, I, I want to walk us through the topic of the hidden heart. The hidden heart. Everybody say that with me, the hidden heart. Say it after me, that's fine too. David, after he's caught in his sin, he confesses, and Psalm 51 is all about the hidden heart. He sits down and he writes these stanzas of confession to show us the right way to handle our sin, the right way to handle our secret sin. If I had to subtitle this message, I would simply call it this, Secrets, Secrets Are No When you were a kid, did you ever like hear that sort of like called out if maybe you and a friend were whispering or a teacher like in class would have said like, hey, secrets, secrets are no fun. Secrets are for everyone. Now let's just put this on the table. Not true. Okay. Just there's a place and a time for confidentiality. Okay. But when we talk about secret sin, as, as we grow up past the sandbox and leave that sort of childish way of thinking where we just have to get everything out in the open, all of a sudden our culture has taught us that, that it's more valuable to conceal than to confess. If politics and the media and celebrities have taught us anything as a society, it's that you don't air your dirty laundry, you fight hard against it even if you're guilty. And David in Psalm 51 models for us a godly way to approach our sin. And I, I want this for you so badly today to hear this and to take this and to live in the freedom of this because hiding never brings healing. So we look at David's journal. This is an emotional journal of what David goes through, the pain in his heart as he comes to God after his sin. Read with me verse 1. David says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I imagine the conviction that David feels as he writes these words is mixed with both embarrassment and fear. I don't know if you've ever had to walk into someone's office and say, hey man, I, I did this wrong thing against you, but um, nobody ever walks into the presence of another sinner and says, hey, I did it again. Shucks. And likewise, no sinner approaches God with indifference over our sin as if to say, you knew this would happen, just fix me. No, we approach God with fear. And David, in his fear of God, he says, have mercy upon me. And what David is saying here is so common to us. It's so common. I've, I've seen it in my life as, as I've had to uh, practice confession myself. It's the challenge of confession. David is modeling for us the challenge of confession. How many people know this? The first step is always the hardest. Uh, no matter what you're doing in life, if you're setting out on a new business venture, whatever you're doing, often it's that first step, that initial just, 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 just biting the bullet and doing it. That's the hardest part. And it's so true about confession. How many of us here would confess more frequently if there wasn't this challenge in front of us? 
This internal dialogue saying, well, you know, it's not really that bad what you did. And you know what, do they really need to know? I, I so often, if, if I told you how often, you'd, you'd, be, you'd f- maybe fire me. Um, so many times I have to confess just my sin against someone or to God. And to confess, it's, it's a breakdown in our pride. To acknowledge our stains and our imperfections, it's a, it's a challenge for us. And I know whenever I sin, I hear this internal dialogue. My shame tells me the story that the pain of you telling this person what you've done to them is not worth the pain of going through that. In fact, you, you ought to be better just keeping your mouth shut. They can never know. Or um, they're going to be so angry with you. Don't do it. If I could be completely honest with you all today, all my new favorite friends here in this safe space. When I sin and I know I need to confess, my shame tells me this story, Dan, you're a pastor. People expect you to be perfect. People expect you to be holy. If you can't be, who can? People will never trust you if they find out. You can never let them know. The challenge of confession is simply this. It's, it's in, in my own mind. I see the mirror of my sin so clearly that it blinds me from what everybody else sees. I'm so self-obsessed, so self-absorbed in my own heart that it, the challenge just becomes too real. And, and, and we can imagine David here penning the words of this psalm, knowing the challenge, knowing what God would say, what the people would say, and writing so clearly, have mercy upon me, God. I'm not what I claim to be. And David shows us how to overcome the challenge. How do you overcome the internal obsession over what you've done? The, 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 the shame of thinking about how, the, how other people are thinking about you. Well, David shows us it's that when you're all self-obsessed, you take your eyes off of yourself and you turn it over to God. You take your sin and you look at God and, and David says, God, you are merciful. You are abounding in love. You are steadfast in your kindness. And David says, it's your mercy that allows me to approach you, God. It's not your justice and your, and your judgment that's going to hammer me, but I know when I come to you, I'll be greeted with warmth. I'll be greeted as a son. I'll be greeted as a child because you are merciful. Thank God for his mercy, Amen. Mercy, it simply means uh, that God in his love does not give me what I deserve. Though we're sinful, surely he will turn from his wrath and give us mercy. And the challenge of confession is easily overcome when we remember that God is good. And I hope, friends, if you have this mental picture of God holding up the hammer of justice ready to, to strike it down on you, that you realize that that's not an accurate picture of God. Our God is love, and he is waiting to take the sinner back from the faraway land. Notice what David says next in verse three. David says, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David says, I know my transgressions. I'm aware of it. I see it so clearly. I, like, I know. And in this, David shows us the clarity of confession. That's the second thing. It's the clarity of confession. Um, in, my, in my house, in my family, uh, my wife and I, my wife is Kristen, she uh, just gave birth a couple weeks ago to our third kid. His name's Graham, and uh, we're pretty pumped about Graham. I don't know what to do with you guys. Everybody else claps when I say that. <laughs> Are we not? I'm like pouring out my soul up here, and you're all like, your wife had a, had a baby. Okay. Happens every day. Good for you. So we've got three kids. Um, my daughter turns four in a couple days. And then I've got a two-year-old and then a newborn. So please pray for us. And uh, I remember with our oldest, as, as we were starting to like, correct her and train her and, and teach her like, the right things, um, we would have to use some creative forms of punishment. And oftentimes I would um, have to calm her down in the midst of her getting a, a consequence and, and have to kind of get on her eye level. And, and um, I would say to her, I'd, I'd look at her and say, hey, hey, baby, why am I mad? Why are you in trouble? I remember so many times she would look back at me through tears and she would say, you're mad at me because you disobeyed me. <laughs> I'd be like, all right, we got some work to do. You don't get that picture from David, do you? No, he's a, he's a dude that knows his sin. He's saying, like, I'm clear on my actions. I call them sin. As we, as we think about this together, I just wonder, do you know your sin? Like, are you clear on your actions and, and, and what's sin? Chances are, you know. Like, chances are, I don't have to point out to you, like, oh, hey, by the way, man, that was sin. Like, you kind of already know, like, that's a spirit at work in you. But I wonder if you call those actions sin. We have a tendency today to mess with words, don't we? We try to litigate our actions, redefine sin. We say things like, it's not an affair, it's dinner. It's not stealing, it was creative accounting. And however your heart convinces you of these alternative facts, confession by its nature demands a standard of living. In fact, that's what the word confess actually means. It means to agree with one another, to say the same thing together. And when we confess our sins, we say with God that our actions are rebellious against his authority and they run contrary to the way that he would have us live our lives. And then to transgress, David says, I know my transgressions. To transgress, it means to cross the line. Do you know when you've crossed the line with God? Uh, maybe you remember back to your history class, Julius Caesar was um, at peace with the Roman Senate as long as he stayed north of the river Rubicon. Do you remember this? And um, Julius Caesar famously decided to wage war with his own people, a civil war, and he crossed the Rubicon. And in doing so, he transgressed that river and transgressed his people. And the same thing is so true with us, is that when we sin against God, we transgress his rules and it puts us at war with God for having crossed his boundaries in life. 
And in this clarity of confession, David is now recognizing that his sin is ultimately against God. I mean, you and I may sin against one another and have a, tendency, have a tension in our relationship, but, but the greater unseen tension is that a sin against the brother is a sin against God. I don't know if you, if you read, I, against you and you only have I sinned, verse 4, and you go, wait a minute. What does Uriah think about that verse? What does Bathsheba have to say about that verse? David, what do the people of Israel have to say about that verse? Surely you've sinned against them too. And yet David is just pulling out this, this, this uh, underlying principle that the sin against one another is first and foremost a sin against God. David gets at this and he, he recognizes and he says, God, I've sinned against you. I, I've done what you wouldn't want from me and you know that I am thoroughly sinful. David says this in verse five when he says, I, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. We don't at all believe that David's mother bore him out of infidelity, but what David is saying is that to the uttermost parts of my being, I am not inclined towards God, I am inclined towards sin. There's a real beauty in verse six. Because when we realize that our hearts are inclined towards sin, we gotta ask the question, well, how are our hearts inclined ever towards God? David says this, he says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You see, the clarity of confession allows us to simply say, I can't do this on my own, I need you, God, and the truest thing I can say right now is that I am sinful. Parents, just as an aside, that's the goal of parenting. Right there. You want to teach your kids the gospel? A highlight for them as they grow up the ways in which they fall short. Not in an oppressive, judgmental, over-the-top type of way, please. But when your kid realizes the internal struggle of their soul is between God and themselves, point that out. Help them come to a place where they, they say, I, I can't do this. Like I'm not as good as everybody told me I was. That's such a good place to be because when you're there, God can go to work on you. And notice what happens to David here in verse seven. We're gonna move on. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And already we've observed the challenge of confession and the clarity of confession. And here we see so beautifully the cleansing of confession. There is a cleansing that happens in confession. What a beautiful thing. David says, purge me. And that, the, to purge really means to cleanse or to de-sin, just to unsin me. It's like that undo button on your computer. Wouldn't that be nice? In life, just the undone. David says, do that. Wash away the sins of my life. And verse seven is a little weird. I mean, you can kind of get the sense of verses one through six naturally, and then you get to verse seven, and it says, purge me with hyssop. And most modern readers, we don't actually know what to do with that. My first pass, I wondered, um, maybe that's an essential oil enema? Maybe? No? It's not a business idea, by the way. Don't take that as an idea. 
No, he says, purge me with, with hyssop. And here's what it is. Look at, look at um, Exodus 12 with me. This is the, the, the day before, um, or the, right before the angel of death passes over in the last plague. Let's, let's put that up. Do I have it? Yeah. Take a bunch of hyssop. This is God telling the Israelites what to do. Take a bunch, just grab hyssop. It's this little stringy plant. And dip it in the blood that is in the basin. And touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. So, so the people would take the, the hyssop, this plant, and they would anoint the doorpost of their house. And when the angel of death would see it, they would pass over the house. And the people, the firstborn in that home, would be spared graciously death. In Leviticus and Numbers, we're told that hyssop was used to sprinkle blood on someone who was unclean, and it would ceremonially make them clean. God, at the end of each one of these ceremonies, he would declare, thus you are clean. The author of Hebrews reminds us in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 9 that Moses dipped hyssop in blood. And he sprinkled it on the covenant, the scroll containing the commandments. He, he sprinkled blood on the tabernacle and the things used in the ceremonies. At the end of Hebrews 9, after all of this, he's, he makes this comment, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. So to be purged with hyssop then means to be covered and cleansed by the blood of a sacrifice. And David is envisioning himself going through this purification process and coming out the other side, perhaps physically drenched in crimson blood, but spiritually before God, pure, white as snow. It's such a powerful image that the prophet Isaiah would borrow this from David. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, as he declares the word of the Lord that though your sins are like scarlet, you shall be washed white as snow. What hope there is for cleansing for us, isn't there? How many of us just wallow around in our sin all day long, feeling dirty and wicked and letting shame reflect all of these issues in our lives when, when truly all we need is the cleansing of the blood? We need the cleansing of confession. Confession, it's bleach for the soul. It's the removal of all impurities and wickedness. And I find tremendous comfort in the fact that if, if we can overcome the challenge of confession with courage, if we can be clear on our sins and look our sins square in the eyes and name them for what they are, we can be bold like David and say, hey, turn your face away from my sins, God. Don't see them. Blot them out. And he does. Which brings us to a fourth virtue of confession and found in verse 10. Are you guys still with me? Oh, yeah. Okay, verse 10. David says this. Maybe you've heard this before. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. And cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. I don't know if you're like me, but when I sin and I know I need to confess, I'm often so afraid that my world is going to crumble down around me in destruction. We assume confession, it contains a level of destruction that's going to take place, and perhaps we're right. The Bible does say that the wages of sin is death. That's the message of Scripture from top to bottom. You choose to sin, you choose to kill what is good. But um, maybe I can graciously say it this way and forgive me. If you've cheated on your spouse and you think that by telling them that, 
you will hurt them, you're thinking about it all wrong. Because you have already hurt them. Sin is a bomb that detonates in our lives. And maybe your family hasn't felt the aftershock of that explosion, but it is coming. You cannot contain sin. It will eat you alive. It will rob your life. It will destroy your joy. And it will kill you. I'm so grateful for that verse. I don't know where it is. Someone can email me later. But but, but God has told his people, be sure your sin will find you out. Shame's twisted nature is to try and convince us that life is better if nobody finds out. Then your world won't fall apart. You can hold on to that happiness that you're trying to create. But David's example reminds us that hope is always and only ever in the hands of God. Sin brings about destruction, but David shows us this. It's the fourth thing, that confession brings about creation. This is the creation of confession. The creation of confession. Notice this with me. Um, What's created when we confess? Look at verse 10 together. David says, created me a clean heart. When I hear David say create, I think all the way back to the beginnings. Where in the beginning God created. The Hebrew word there is the same in Genesis 1 as it is in Psalm 51. They're actually used very, uh, very sparingly in the Old Testament. It's a significant thing. Genesis 1-2 tells us that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters in the creation story. That God breathed the breath of life, his Spirit, into Adam. And in the garden we lived our perfect lives with God. And David is reminding himself, saying, saying, God, I need you to create in me a clean heart and a right spirit. And he's referencing the goodness of how life was in the garden, how life in God is supposed to be. And he says, give me a fresh start, give me a do-over. Why? Because David is remembering so clearly the results of Adam and Eve's sin, which was that they were banished from the presence of God in the garden. Verse 11, he says, or yeah, cast me not away from your presence. He's retelling himself the creation story. And this is a remarkable thing to ask God to create a new heart in us. Technically speaking, this is a miracle. David says, miraculously do something in me. I think he, he, he recounts the creation story for us because he remembers my God created this world. He created humanity. He breathes his right spirit in Adam and he did all of this miraculously out of nothing. If God can do that, surely he can recreate my pitiful heart. For us, the thought about improving ourselves and undoing the tangled mess of our sin is like unscrambling an egg. And yet for God, this is what he does every day. In the hearts of people who know their sin, God is in the business of recreating and healing them and bringing them health. Ezekiel was a prophet whose visions most clearly point this out. Notice David's plea, Ezekiel's prophecy. They're a mirror for one another. I just want to show this to you. It's Ezekiel 36. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. 
And I will give you a new heart and put a pure spirit, a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So question, how do we get back to the way that it was supposed to be? It's through the creation of confession, the recreation of our hearts in a clean state. David says this, look there in verse 12. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I don't know about you, but I wish a lot of Christians would get their joy back. You might be here today and be in need of the restoration of your joy of salvation. Christian, the longer you let sin fester in your heart, the more your joy quotient goes down. So one day you wake up and you're a curmudgeon going to church amongst God's people and God's house and God's day and all of a sudden you're fighting about God's things. Saying, I wish the, the chairs were different. I wish the songs were different. I wish someone would have walked me through taking the bread today and actually sipping the cup instead of the screen. You fight about all these really ridiculous things and you realize in your heart there is cynicism and sorrow and pain self-inflicted wounds from unconfessed sin and how do you get your joy back it's by the creation of a new heart through confession and this is what i love about psalm 51 i just love this this is so true for you in confessing david's world does not crumble it actually gets rebuilt. David gets his joy back. God is not only rebuilding his heart, he's restoring David's world and relationships. Listen, listen, here's the truth. Confession does not destroy relationships. Sin does that. Confession restores relationships. Confession restores hope. And confession restores hearts. If you're here today and, 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 and you're sitting here wondering, God, how can my heart be restored? Uh, maybe it's true that you've lost the art of confession. That you've held on to secret sin too long and you need to confess that to, to your family and to your God. If I could be so bold as to make this one last statement, I think that confession restores and recreates marriages. I can't help but think of so many joyless Christians suppressing sins and causing them to have joyless Christian marriages. And I want to say this without sounding arrogant or as if I have this all together because certainly if you know me, you know my marriage is not perfect. And in fact, I think I was drawn today by the Spirit to preach Psalm 51 because of the enormous amount of times in my life I've returned to its pages and, and poured out my life and my soul in confession through Psalm 51 so many times that it's a little embarrassing, y'all. So I don't have, claim to have this all together, but I, I see this, especially at the campus that I serve in. So many Christians come and they have joyless marriages. And I wonder if you have a joyless marriage if it's not because you have lost the art of confession. I've had so many people in my office at the Hobart Portage campus tell me about their marriages. Some of the saddest stories 
time after time, I hear the same word coming up. It's the word secret. I hear these things. He's secretive about his schedule. I don't know where he goes. She's secretive about her phone. I have no idea who she's texting. And he's secretive about our money. I, I've, I couldn't tell you how much he makes or where it all is. So if, if marriage, if marriage is, is created by God to reflect the intimate union we have with him, then, then you know you're doing it right the more you come together as a couple to know the hidden heart of your spouse almost as well as you know your own. And unconfessed, secretive sin is a giant roadblock in your life to connecting with your spouse. You gotta get that out of there. To go through great pains to confess your sin. Man, I've heard so many wives recently tell me, I know he's having an affair. I just wish he'd be honest with me about it. Because then we could do something about it. I've heard other spouses say, I have no idea who they're talking to on Facebook and I don't have the password to their phone. What am I to think? And I've heard spouses even recently tell me about how hard it is to live with another spouse who lies about their drug problem and hides things all around the house so as to not get caught. Isn't it true? Secrets, secrets are no fun. There's no joy in hiding sin. As boldly as I can urge you today, like if I... If I could institute a, a church-wide holiday, a national holiday, I would just call today National Give Your Phone Password to Your Spouse Day. Like, wouldn't that be a great day on the calendar? I could cook out some meat over that holiday. <laughs> Not just your phone, but like your Facebook account and your web history and access to your emails. Some of you I'm treading on dangerous ground because you know what you would be found in there needs to be deleted right away. And today is a necessary day for you to grow in this process of confession and healing that needs to take place for your heart to live the full life. For you to come clean with your spouse and say, hey, listen, here's what's happening and I need help. Here's what's happening, I'm so sorry. I need you to know about it. I need it to be brought in the light. I've been carrying this around for so long, it's ruining me. And will you forgive me? Some of you today, you need to take that credit card that you got at the store when your spouse wasn't with you and kind of put it on the table and just say, hey, by the way, um, I have this. And I'm not talking about the clothing one. I'm talking about the tool one, okay? (laughs) So many of us need to go through whatever it is. I don't want to be so specific here because sin is not so specific. You each struggle with it in your own way, but we ought to go through great pains to remove the secrets from our lives. And if we do so, it may hurt, but in the end, it will not be destruction. Don't buy into the lie that confession is destruction. David shows us confession is creative. God breathes life into your confession and brings about healing. And look at, look at how this comes about here at the end of, end of Psalm 51. And someone's saying, please wrap this up. <laughs> Psalm 51, this is what we see. It's the cost of confession. Look at verse 13 with me. David says, then I will teach the transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. 
Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. And check this out. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. No, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So what, what happens when you confess your sin? Well, God cleanses you. You have the joy of seeing sinners return to the Lord, even leading them there. You have freedom from the penalty of your own sins. You have an ability to sing out loud at the top of your lungs about God's goodness. But truly, these rewards, they come at a cost, don't they? I want you to hear this. This is so important. There's a cost of confession because there is a cost to forgiveness. So many of us are breaking our backs, walking through life with the bag of sin tied closely at hand, loading it up, loading it up, loading it up. And all of a sudden we are on this one-way street towards a crisis and we see the person we need to confess to and we dump all of our sin in front of them. And in doing so, that's like a cathartic experience for us. We're like, it's over, it's done. They know it's in the light. I don't have to hide anymore. Oh my gosh, it feels so good. I remember really early on in marriage uh, to Kristen, who I thank God for her and her forgiveness and love in my life. I remember early on, I, I did something I needed to confess to her. I'd really hurt her. And I remember bringing her the secret that I had and I needed to confess. And I remember confessing and I remember feeling amazing. Like I truly remember feeling like, oh my goodness, God, this is great. And I remember looking my wife square in the eyes and she was bawling. Just a wreck. It's because whenever you reveal what's already there in the, the hurt of your life, it may feel good for you to unload it, but it is pain for the person receiving it. And forgiveness always costs something. And confession to God is one small way that we lay down our sins to him and we ask him, will you pay for this for me? And that's what forgiveness is, is to say, will you pick up the tab on this? Will you absorb the hurt that I've inflicted upon you? Can you do that for me? And friends, thank our God that he has already paid the penalty for our sins. Thank God, yeah, amen. Thank our God that not only does he know the sin inside of us, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That a sacrifice was sent from heaven to earth, not because God delights in sacrifice, but because he knows that no sacrifice will utterly take away sin except for a perfect sacrifice. David is pulling out here this principle that the greater the sin, the greater the sacrifice. And how good it is for us to know that Christ died on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins so that all of us here with our wickedness can come to the one who can totally pay and forgive and absorb and handle our confession and forgive us in his mercy. There is a cost to confession, but don't you see the cost has already been paid? Like you don't have to check out on confession, but you can actually approach God in his mercy. 
because he loves us. He sent his own son to be the the sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God who died in our place for our sin. And he paid it all. The cost of confession then isn't something that you are carrying around right now. It's already been footed. The bill's already been paid by Jesus. And so friends, my only aim today, and and, and I wanna say this and then pray. My only aim today is that you might be inspired and encouraged to honestly deal with your life. Thank God for the example that David shows us in how the most horrendous sin can have the most rebuilt hope. And I pray that over all of us today.